Coming up, a conversation with lawyer and writer Justin Earley about the importance of rhythms and habits to our spiritual and communal lives. After the music. Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through conversations with thinkers, scholars, and leaders, we explore the life of the mind and the questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Hello, and welcome back to our first podcast in 2022. I'm Dan Hummel, your host and on staff here at Upper House. And as we launch into a new year, just want to say here at the top of our first episode of the new year that we're so excited to be continuing the Upwards podcast and to be bringing you interviews with people both in our community here in Madison and beyond. Many of us, as you know, conduct interviews and it's really some of the highlights of our weeks or months looking forward to the people we get to talk to uh, about interesting topics and worthwhile topics as well. So our episode today is one that maybe makes sense uh, to talk about here at the beginning of a new year. It's about rhythms and habits and the way that uh, we are shaped by those. And you can think about even the holiday season, the semester break. These are longer rhythms, annual rhythms or cycles that create certain moods, certain conditions every end of the year that we live into and we think through. And uh, we also have many daily rhythms and habits that shape us in ways big and small. What we eat every day, who we decide to spend time with, how much we work, and on and on. And you can think of many spiritual practices or habits that fit in there too and help form each one of us. And ultimately, we might say, as our guest does today, that in the battle between the head and the heart, I think for many of us, our daily habits, our daily actions tend to follow the heart. We might in our head have a certain vision of how our rhythms should go either annually or daily or weekly or monthly, but often the habits of the heart overcome any plan we have in our head and New Year's resolutions are an interesting case study in that. Something that, as most of us know, a New Year's resolution doesn't really take hold just as a mental exercise or even as something you just verbalize, but you actually have to organize your life around that resolution for it to last past a few weeks in January. So all that's to set up this episode where my colleague Dan Johnson is joined by Justin Earley to discuss the importance of practices, rhythms, and habits to a healthy life with God and a healthy family life as well. And Justin calls us to embrace a true freedom not just the absence of all limitations, that might be a very common cultural understanding of what freedom is, but freedom in relation to practices of worship and service to God. Dan introduces Justin at the beginning of the conversation, so I'm not going to get into uh, the details of who Justin Early is, but I'll just say that Justin's two books that are mentioned in this conversation, The Common Rule and Habits of the Household, are linked in the show notes if you're interested. So with that, here is an upwards conversation between Jan Johnson and Justin Early. Well, hey, welcome to the Upwards uh, podcast. Uh, my name is Daniel Johnson. I'm the director of technology and digital promotions here at Upper House. We have uh, Justin Early on the line with us today. 
And uh, he's the author of two great books, um, The Common Rule, uh, Habits and Purpose for an Age of Distraction, and his brand new book that just came out this fall, The Habits of the Household, Practicing the Story of God in Everyday Family Rhythms. So we're so excited to have Justin here. Hey, Justin, we would love for you just to share a little bit of your background and your story. Um, You have a very interesting story with your law practice and this journey into being an author. We'd love just to get a little bit of your background as we start our conversation today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for asking, Daniel. Excited to be here. I am, just to start, uh, a corporate lawyer, which is a fancy way of saying business lawyer. I write contracts for people. That's what I do for my quote unquote day job. But I feel like my real life vocation is much more broad and intertwined than that. I I write, I speak. Um, I'm a father to my four boys, a husband to my wife, Lauren, and a friend to my community here in Richmond, Virginia. So all that is is sort of what comprises my mission in life. And I see it all very missionally. So it's it's a complicated life sometimes doing the authoring and the lawyering. But it's also really, really satisfying. So happy to dive into any any or all of those if you want more on that. That's great. Tell us a little bit about, um, we talk a lot about work-faith kind of integration. I know that you've written a lot about that. Just how you think about that as uh, an author, but also as a lawyer, <laughs> and kind of the calling between those two and the, and the tension between those two. This is one of my favorite things to talk about. And it's hard not to write more on it in the books that I write, because I haven't written any book on work or vocation or calling yet. (laughs) But it's been a really big part of my story because I was an English major at the University of Virginia, who then decided to go be a missionary in China, who five years into that had a calling experience where I felt uh, truly called by the Lord to come back to the States and become a missionary in the field of law and business, which by which I mean sort of live missionally, try to see the the truth of the gospel brought to bear uh, within the realms of business and lawyering. And so I've really moved from key places in my life, you know, from being a student to being a missionary, from being a missionary to being a a missional lawyer, all, all around these senses and urges of the Lord's calling. And some of them haven't been as clear as others, but they've all been really motivated by the idea that I'm doing what I'm doing because the Lord of the universe has called me to do that. And I see that in my parenting too. So as I work them together, sometimes it feels uh, disparate as in my clients don't necessarily care about my publishing deadlines and my publisher doesn't necessarily care about the deal that one of my clients is trying to strike with another business they can tug on each other in terms of time and obligation. And I think that's true for anybody's life. We all feel like we have these silos of life that compete with each other for time and energy. But on the other hand, missionally, I see them as really, really synergistic. Um, I feel like, and I wrote in the common rule that my, my vocation is one of words. I try to use words to change things. And that might be negotiating a deal for a client and getting people to say the magic word of yes, the contract is, is done and agreed or the deal is closed or or writing books or doing a podcast like this, where I think we're doing something much more powerful than we sometimes give it credit for. We're putting words into people's lives that are creating new thoughts, new realities, new possibilities right now. It's very 
it's very incarnational godlike image of god bearing business they were trying to put words into the world that change the way people think and then act like our small mimicking of genesis i think so weaving them together will be a lifelong challenge but I'm, i'm deeply in love with the idea of using words to change the world in all sorts of places absolutely absolutely that's great well, I want to talk a little bit about the common rule um, and actually both books here, but uh, what is the problem you're kind of trying to solve between these two books? What have you recognized as, as in culture that you're trying to dive into in the framework between both of these books? They are both books that were written out of my own personal crises. So in one sense, The problem I was trying to solve was the problem in my own life. And yet I think in both of them probably wouldn't have written a book about it if I didn't think like other people were struggling with it too. So in the common rule, well, both of these books, to be clear for any listeners are are on the ways that habits form us spiritually. That's, That's true in all my writing so far. And the problem I'm trying to solve is how is it that otherwise sincere followers of Jesus are nonetheless racked by their busyness, their mental stress, their depression, their anxiety. How is it that we can become such people of angst while we're professing a gospel of peace? Maybe put some more succinctly, how does the head get so far from the habit and the heart? Um, and that's the problem I'm trying to solve. How, how is it that we're formed so deeply by our habits and usually don't even know it? For me, this was not an abstract issue. What happened to me is after I came back from being a missionary in China and dove into law school and lawyering, as I said before, with all the fervor of a man on a call, I did not think, nor do I think most people think, about how the rhythms and the rules and the habits and norms of such an occupation of lawyering were going to change me. I came in to you know, change it, to live missionally within my occupation. But I found that by unconsciously adapting to the schedule, to the way you have to check your phone, or at least are supposed to check your phone, the way that you attend to emails, the way that you keep adding things to your schedule, the way that you increase your busyness, that you, that you never say no to any obligation, that you extend the evening hours and the morning hours. I think probably anything that a typical college student is also struggling with in some sense. This is, this is a, a white collar, you know, academic problem for sure, but a, a broad problem in, in the West, I think that we continue to live beyond our limits. Um, I ended up having a serious collapse uh, from anxiety and panic. I didn't even know what it was at the time, but I found myself unable to sleep and it got really bad. It got so bad that I was either um, taking some pills, sleeping pills or having a few drinks just to fall asleep in the evening. And so this was not an abstract question for me. This was a very personal question of how the missionary to law and business became converted to the nervous medicating lawyer in such short order. And what I found, um, which is, was not an easy solution, by the way, this took, this took years. So I'm sort of summarizing it in retrospect. But what I found is that I had been unconsciously converted by habit, that by, by aligning my habit to all these things, my heart started to follow the habit instead of my head. And so I became converted to these routines of busyness and anxiety. And it took reforming my habits to get my head and my heart back to the right place. So what I say now is that when you're, when your head goes one way, but your habits go the other way, your heart's going to follow the habit. And for disciples of Jesus, this, this really just means that to be a full disciple, 
and you'll find this in the scriptures. To be a full disciple, you need to align your head and your habit to the heart of Jesus. That's that's really what following Jesus means. It's not just a head project. It's an embodied whole life project. But I had missed out on the habit part. And that's what I write about now, both in the common rule, um, which is more about individual, still communal, but personal practices. Um, and then Habits of the Household is very much a parenting and family book about how this stuff plays out in the home. But the habits follow the heart. That's the problem I'm trying to solve. So I just want to uh, camp out on the common rule for a second. The common rule, uh, kind of what is the underlying principle there? And then what are some of the most discussed habits from the common rule that you usually talk about in settings with communities and groups? I'm going to stick on the first question for a minute there, because I think that's really important. I, I open the common rule with a, a section, an introduction, where I tell the story I just told you, and then explain some of the principles underlying it. And it's titled Discovering the Freedom of Limitations. And this is really, really important to me. And I think important for anybody who wants to consider why habits form them spiritually. This is important to grasp. I think the the operative principle here is that most Americans have a completely incorrect idea of what freedom really is. I think growing up in the Western world with the enlightenment ideals that we've uh, unconsciously been indoctrinated to. We assume that the good life is freedom, by which we mean the ability to do anything we want at any given moment. And we think the ability to do what we want, as in the removal of all restrictions, so that we're a blank slate, um, that, that is the good life. The problem is, that's not at all how we were created. We be created as limited beings to worship a creator means we are actually always sort of looking for a paradigm to fit our souls in. In other words, we're actually looking for limitations. We're actually looking for something to worship, something that we can bow our knee to, submit ourselves to, really enslave ourselves to. Um, that might be controversial language, but we're looking for a master, which means when we adopt this weird idea of freedom is the absence of all limitations. What ends up happening is that we unconsciously submit to someone else's limitations, but it's usually read almost always a master who doesn't love us back. Um, This could be as explicit as an addiction to alcohol, pornography, or something else, or it could be as understated, but equally as dangerous as an addiction to technology or work or academic success. Um, as David Foster Wallace famously put it in that graduation speech that gets recited all the time, this is water because it's so good. You know, we, we can't not worship. We're always going to find that master. So what I want people to realize is that limitations are actually beautiful because they're the way that we were made to be. And so the real definition of biblical freedom is not the ability to, to do whatever we want in any given moment, but the ability to do what we were made for. And that actually requires choosing the right limitations. Submitting just like a, a plane has to be finely tuned. You can't put the nuts and the bolts and the dials anywhere you want. They limited to certain very finely tuned areas so that that plane can fly, which is maybe one of the best examples of freedom. The thing can actually soar through the air. So we need to finely tune ourselves to our creator and the limits that we were given. 
a bit of a long explanation, Daniel, but for the, a simple question. But the, the governing principle here is how do we really pick the right limitations in our life so that we can be free? And what I write about in the common rule is just eight examples, four daily and four weekly practices that would sort of serve as the guardrails to a beautiful life, by which I mean a free life, because it is for freedom that Christ set us free. And I can dive into any one of those, but I think it's really important before I get to practicals to, to state why one would consider adopting a life of careful and even restricted habit in the first place. Well, and I love the way that that book is set up too. I was talking a little bit beforehand that we did this with our interns and uh, it, it was so practical, like the theology, the principle were so woven in to the practical um, and the practice of it. Uh, so it was really easy to read about it and then practice that that next week, <laughs> um, the habit, and then discuss it together, uh, which I think was really important and to do that as part of a community and to you know, celebrate those that were doing well, and then to encourage others that maybe had some difficulties or missed the mark. Um, but I think even I think about that intern class, and there was students that are still living out some of those habits um, from that from our time together. That's great. I love that you read it together, too. This is one of my favorite kind of stories to hear, because um, it's called the common rule for a reason. It's meant to be communally practiced and communal communal reading is one of the best ways to get there. They're also the most sticky habits, the ones you do alongside other people. What uh, we'll just highlight a couple here of the habits from the common rule. So what are a couple that are kind of most discussed or most requested from you um, either those dailies or those weekly habits from that book? Yeah. I'd love to give an example of those on the daily scripture before phone is probably one of the most impactful habits that I hear people respond to. Um, and, and this is the idea. It's simple as a daily practice. It's, it's committing to not go to your phone until you've spent some time in scripture. And on a practical level, for me, this is often extremely brief, sometimes even embarrassingly brief. It's listening to the, listening to a chapter of Proverbs or the, the gospel maybe on my way to work audio, or it's sitting down and reading a devotion before I start the morning. But this is why I think I'll unpack it for a minute. This is why I think it's a great example. Early on in my lawyering, I was working with a London office. This was before like, or or right about the time of the anxiety crash I told you about. And London being a couple hours ahead of us meant that I woke up to a half a day's worth of emails in my inbox every morning. And I did what any aspiring young lawyer or ambitious person would do. I just you know, rolled over the minute I woke up and I started reading them to see what London wanted of me, right? Um, I never would have thought this is any sort of spiritually formative practice. It's just checking my email in the morning, which, pause here major theme in my books now are realizing that the ordinary practices are the most extraordinary in terms of spiritual formation. Cause it's, it's precisely the nature of the things we do every day that make this seem normal. That, that means the grooves are running so deep, right? So just flag that in your life. The, the ordinary practices are probably the most extraordinary ones that are shaping you spiritually. So I never realized this until it was one morning when one of my sons woke early and I woke up, I heard him cry. I got up to go help him. And five minutes later, I realized I'm sitting on the foot of my bed, responding to an email from the London office. 
and I hadn't even, you know, gone to help him. And I, that was the moment that I snapped to it. And I said, Oh my gosh, I've become the guy, the guy who's more attentive to the cries of his office than the cries of his son. And it was so apparent to me in that moment that I didn't plan to be like this. I didn't want to be like this. I never sat out to be like this. I had become like this through habit. Um, my, my head is asking my phone a super simple question in the morning, which is just what I need to do. What do I need to do today? My heart under the radar is asking my phone an entirely different question. It's, it's much more a question of identity. Who do I need to be today? Um, who do I need to make happy today in order to be somebody that's lovable? And so when I recommend a practice like scripture before phone, it's much more than anything about checking off your devotion or even being productive or even getting your morning straight. All of those are ancillary benefits. It's really about training yourself in a spiritual groove to, to sort of work on, train your heart to look for love where love actually is in the morning. And, and then when, when you find yourself full of the love of God, which is the theme of all scriptures, that's precisely the kind of thing that will turn you loose to the world to then go love people through your email inbox or through your social media, or through your academic work that day or through your job, through your parenting, whatever it is. We were meant to receive love from the creator in order to give love. Otherwise, as you know, better theologians than me have said, you know, the, the vacuum in our heart, the idol factory of our heart, we'll go making all of those things that we ought to do or those people we ought to love into our sources of love. And habits as seemingly innocent or ordinary as scripture before phone matter as daily routines and sort of carving those groups of the heart. So it's nothing legalistic. Um, it's nothing like, this is why habits are beautiful. They're pretty elastic. You know, you can do them five days a week, rest on the weekends, or you can have an off week, which I do when things get really busy or an off morning. And they're just the, but they're the grooves you fall back on. It's what you normally do. And I've heard a lot of people respond to this kind of practice. It's just something that's helped a get them out of the stresses of their phone as if that's neutral, right? It's certainly not like what we look at in the morning part of this is just removing the rampant sort of, uh, grand canyons of confusion that you can fall in by going to social media first thing in the morning, for example. Um, and then, and then replacing that with the sure ground of the gospel. So I, my next practice that I would recommend would be the weekly practice of an hour of conversation with friend. But maybe before I go on to that, just pause and see if you have any thoughts on the scripture before phone idea. Yeah, I, I love that. I mean, I, I think even, uh, you know, removing the device from your bedroom um, kind of eliminate some of that. And, uh, you know, that was a big conversation that we had with our interns, right? It's like, they're using it for their, um, you know, alarm clock and everything, right? Like research is showing like, they're falling asleep, right? With it in their hand and, and whatnot. And so, uh, so it was really interesting to even have a conversation about like, okay, what if you even removed this device even from there? And so then it's, it's actually not even a temptation then in the morning, right? Like you can grab other things and dive into scripture uh, before you even jump into that. And I think that was a really helpful, it was a really helpful tool uh, for myself and for others. So. Yeah. And, and you know, once you get, once you get the idea, you see these everywhere, which is why a lot of the other daily practices and weekly practices are about technology because um, I think like, 
sex, money, power, all, you know, many of the greatest things in the world are also the most dangerous things in the world. And I think that's true with technology. So it's, I'm on my phone and computer a lot. I'm not, it's not to be a Luddite about anything. It's to put it in its proper place. Um, as Andy Crouch has, has written about, I love that phrasing, put it in its proper place. And, and once you realize that we're not like we described earlier, we're not just neutral, free human beings who have the great capacity to choose what we want in any given moment. Once you realize that actually we're always looking for a master, we're pretty bad at choosing and we need limitations to guide us to the good life. Then you realize like, why would I sleep with that thing in my bed? Because there's a thousand people on the other side of the screen who, who are want to monetize my attention. And by the way, they're smarter than you. They're way smarter than you. Like it is not a fair fight. So they're paid enormous sums of money to get a fig, to get, to figure out how to get you to keep clicking, keep scrolling and to fight back. We need to fight this sort of fire with fire. The battle of attention is fought through attention, not just by thinking to yourself, you know, I really should use my phone less. No, it's, it's fought through, they're nudging you all the time through likes, alerts, notification, buzzes, rings, dings, like literally, I, none of those were metaphors. They're things that they do to get your body's attention. And the things that we can do back is put, put counter nudges on them. Like it's not going to be in my room after 10 PM, or I'm not going to go to it in the morning till I read scripture or one of my other practices. that's really important for me is I'm going to turn it off an hour a day in the evening. For me, it's during family dinner. Uh, these things, nudges are really important when you understand that you're, you're not in neutral territory because you're, you're going to be moved by nudges. And the, these are very spiritual acts just to say, I'm going to put these things carefully. So I just, I, I waxed on about that bit for a bit because I like that you brought up just the idea of getting it out of your room. There's all these, all these little limitations that become extremely important and really change the fundamental path of our lives by whether or not we adopt them. Well, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit of uh, habits of the household. Um, you kind of set up the book with the gospel liturgies. Um, dive us into what those are and maybe how they set up some of the habits of the household for you. Yeah, you can see how this relates. Um, I spent a lot of time tinkering and toying and thinking about how there were liturgies to my daily routine of work and technology and busyness. And then I had this epiphany moment one evening with my sons where basically I was just blowing up on them at, at bedtime um, and yelling to get everybody in their beds. And I remember shutting the door and realizing uh, that this was normal, which was my deep, dark realization that I hadn't done something unusual that night by yelling at them and, um, and like using my anger to force them to bed. I had done something that was really typical. And I, I, it got me thinking about how I had not really thought about the norms of my household with all the spiritual significance that I had thought about the norms of my technology and work. And it was a pretty convicting moment. As I said, all my books are point out of crisis. Um, I, I realized that the slant of our household, the liturgy of our household was, was a lot about um, rush and frustration. I have, I have four boys. So this is kind of easy because we're, we're loud. We're rambunctious. There's a lot of uh, fighting in the best and the worst of ways. But my response to that is often just to, you know, get loud, get angry. Um, instead of shepherding them towards love, it was sort of like forcing them towards behavior. 
And that became the reason I use the word gospel liturgies is because I thought, oh, you know, it doesn't really matter what I say uh, once or twice about who Jesus is or how God loves them. If the course of my action every day is to embody a person who controls the world through anger, that's probably how they're going to end up seeing authority or God. So I started thinking about what are the what are the different routines that I could put into place not to control their behavior, but also but to try to interrupt my knee-jerk reactions to these situations so that we could do have rhythms in the household that were more oriented towards showing the grace, the patience, the compassion of God, rather than the knee-jerk anger and frustration of, of me. So these are any talk of gospel liturgies as happens to the household is as much about the parent as the child. It, it's, it's really about working on us both, because I think we we parent our children best when we understand that we're parented by God first. So that's, that's where we're going with gospel liturgies and habits of the household. So a, a few of my favorite uh, habits of the household were screen time, marriage, work, and play. And I was wondering if you wanted to pick one of those from the list uh, and kind of speak into some of the habits that you outlined in the book. Ooh, that's a tough choice. I think, I think I'll go with work because it ties together some of our conversation and maybe applies to people who applies to people who aren't parents yet. Um, as we talked about earlier, I think work is just, is one of the most sacred and spiritual parts of our life. I don't, we don't, we don't fully reflect the image of God when we think that work is just something that we have to do in order to get to worship later that night or, you know, on Sunday. Now, I think until we see work as fundamental to who we are, we don't, we don't get who we are in God. We certainly don't get who God is, who loves work, by the way, who invented the whole idea, who made us to spend the vast majority of our lives working. So, so I, you know, I think I've thought so much about how work is so sacred and important in my life, but then I, I look at my kids um, and you could, you know, if you don't have kids yet, sub, substitute your roommates or, or your friends. They don't necessarily see at all what I do in my work life. Like, I mean, how many people listening would be like, I don't really know. Like if I ask you, what does your dad do? You're like, well, he's a consultant or, or you know, like, uh, he researches something about engineering. Probably. Yeah. You just, it's very possible to have no idea what your friends or your parents do. And so when I leave the house every day, which is, is an enormous part of my kid's life, you know, they watch me walk out to work, they receive me back home. And then they look at me around the house, right? And I'm, answer, I'm on my phone. They don't know if I'm checking a baseball score, uh, texting my wife, writing a work email, nothing. So I'm, I'm trying to think, what, what are the habits that could invite them into seeing work with all the, the gospel fullness that I see it? And so that's why I got to think about this in the first place. Um, and I set out a couple of different habits in the book. One is the way that we talk to them about work. Um, simple things like when they ask, as they did this morning, actually, you know, why do you have to go to work today? Because they're all on, we're recording this around Christmas time. You know, they're all starting their winter break. You know, ways that I can answer that question by saying, oh, I get to go to work today because I get to love one of my neighbors today who's a client by helping them on this project. Um, and that might sound, comp you know, that might sound weird at first, but that's just because you're hearing it for the first time when you're normally talking to your kids about 
I get to go to work. It's a place of service. That's the primary place. I love neighbor. Just making that kind of language normal instead of being like, well, who's going to buy your dinner tonight? <laughs> but we, we give our kids a, a much more full picture. Habits of bringing my kids to work is are really important. You know, once in a while, I try to let them see the office. Um, and then here's, here's the huge one for me. And this is, should be really applicable to parents and roommates inviting them to participate in the work of the house. So as there's two things going on here. So as to one dignify the other half of work, which is household labor, um, which in a parent relationship, one of you is going to carry the burden of it. It's most likely, at least in the younger years, going to be the woman because of all the attendant requirements of biology. And one of the things I want to do is dignify my wife's world of work, which is as hard, if not harder than mine. And yet the kids aren't necessarily, they're like, why does, they'll ask me a question, like, why doesn't mama work? And I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, like if you only knew how much. And so inviting them into um, dishes, into laundry, into things that even young children can do, not only shows that this is everybody's work, this is dignified work, but it's also, this is the work that's required to live in a beautiful community. And so one, thank the people who do it for you and two, help them and start to become the kind of person who participates. Why? Not just because the dishes need to get done, but we can't, we can't eat together with all the communal and beautiful significance that is until somebody runs the dishwasher. And if you're living in a college house right, th- right now, like, you know, this, right. If you, it, it's actually a spiritual thing to keep up the house so that community can happen. And, um, all of these things. My son actually said to me the other day, he was, he was like, when I go to college or other people, like, are they going to know how to do the dishwasher? Cause I, I make him learn it. And I'm like, you know what, Whit? maybe not. And this is what I'm trying to train you for. Cause to be a good roommate, you've got to know how to load this dishwasher. So there's, there's just all these things about work that's, that starts so young. And I want, I want parents to embrace that so that we raise a generation of children who really do see work as mission and not just as a side gig of our spirituality. You know, Justin, we're moving into a brand new year. It's often a marker for people. Uh, People often do either resolutions or a word for the year or something. Um, I would just love for you to speak into um, people that are thinking about reframing kind of their lives around a lot of the habits that you have in these two books, um, what would be your word for them moving into a brand new year as they're thinking about changing their lives uh, for the better, for the good? My word would definitely be habits. Okay. It would be habits. And and what I would, would say is um, make habits, not resolutions. I, I think resolutions are as dangerous as they are alluring. And this is such a good time to think about this right around the turn of the year. I just wrote an article about this. You can go onto my website and find stuff um, related to making habits at the new year. Resolutions often itch the, um, they scratch the itch of change without doing anything. And that's why they can be really dangerous because we, we, we are built with this, I think, gospel sense that we ought to change, which is totally right. You know, it's, it's the, the whole response to the gospel now is like, in light of what God has done for you, don't conform to the pattern of the world, you know, Romans 12, but be transformed. And so the idea that we, uh, we, 
we can become a new person or, or, and it could be like, I want to lose 20 pounds this year. I want to stop being distracted at work. I want to, you know, record a record this year, whatever it is. Those are like sort of gospel impulses to the newness that is promised us in revelation. So, but one of the things we do when we just say, all right, resolved, I will be a nice father this year is we have this breath, like, ah, okay, this is going to be great uh, moment where we scratch that itch for change. But of course, saying something like that has no practical agency. It's not even a prayer to invite God into it, nor is it a plan to, to walk through all the sticky things we need to walk to through in order to change. So I don't like resolutions, but I love habits. I love the idea that you would start. And I have a resource for this on the website. It's called a, a habit planner that you would start by saying, let's take something I just said, I am a body um, and I do want to lose 20 pounds, right? I'm speaking ab- abstractly. It would not be good for me if I lost 20 pounds. <laughs> I would be, um, not, not my goal, but, but if you, it, many people, this might be a great goal. Say, I, I am a body and your, your, what your re- resolution should not be lose 20 pounds. Your resolution, should, or you, you should have a vision of saying, I want to be the temple of the Holy Spirit, an excellent temple. I want to be a good steward of my body. That's a great vision. But what are the habits? And I I walk people in the planner through what are annual, um, monthly, and then weekly and daily rhythms that you would do that. So it might be, you know, weekly rhythm, work out three times a week, daily rhythm, don't eat X, um, annual rhythm, run a 10K or something like that. Those are the kinds of things that will lead you to actually lose 20 or more pounds that you can actually be accountable somebody to, that you can actually check off. These are the things your brain will remember because an interesting feature of our psychology is we're sort of addicted to streaking on things. We're addicted to checking things off, which is so good when it's centered towards a good habit. You know, we like the idea, yep, did my quiet time today, or yep, I did my exercise today. Another great feature of of habits is that once you get into the routine of running every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, you don't really think about, oh, I need to run tomorrow. You just go do it. You you have your gym bags there. Your shoes are there. This is just the kind of life that you live. Then you can start thinking about something else. So exercise is a great example because we sort of get how change happens. And I, I use that on purpose. Apply that to the rest of your spirituality. You aren't going to become a more devoted disciple of Christ just by saying so. You're going to be, become it by practicing the spiritual disciplines and community. So in the habit tracker that I offer people, it's, I you know, suggest roles of like think through your discipleship, think through your stewarding of your finances, think through the ways you study and write out daily and weekly habits that actually move the needle on that and then go share it with somebody, be accountable. These are actually incredible times and incredible ways that we can really embrace sanctification. Um, so don't waste your sanctification on a resolution. Make habits. Great. Well, Justin, we're uh, ending our conversation, our time together. Is there anything that you would want to reiterate or highlight with our audience from our conversation today um, as a final word? Yeah, I just use some words like sanctification and changes the uh, gospel response to what Jesus has done for us. I just I leave everybody with that um, because it's really important if you have fears or concerns bumping around in your head right now, guilt associated with your own habits or a, a, a concern of legalism of creating new ones, 
just remember that this whole conversation takes place after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that none of our habits are going to change God's love for us, period. All that we're talking about is that God's love for us can and should change our habits. So uh, this is all centered around the idea to the extent you understand the gospel, you ought to conform your life. You get to conform your life. You are now free from the shackles of your old slavery to conform your life. So it, what, is, what is burdensome and legalistic is to continue living the way that you are living because you are a, a, a legal slave to an unknown master. What is freeing is to take on the light burden of Christ and say that I'm going to conform my life to the pattern that he has given me. That is um, sanctification. That is not legalism. And that is a worthy project because you will become more, not less free. You will become less, not more legalistic. So I would encourage everybody to realize that the gospel is fully present here. This is because of the love of God that we do any of this. Well, Justin, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Uh, You can check out The Common Rule and Habits of the Household. Those will be in the show notes for this episode as Justin's uh, website, which has a lot of great uh, free resources on it as well. Um, So Justin, thank you so much for being on the Upwards podcast with us today. Thanks, Daniel. It's been a great conversation. I really appreciate it. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Music by Micah Baer, audio engineering by Andy Johnson, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.